Hello and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads for the week of October 28th. Trick or treat. I'm your host, Dan Creeder, here with Dan Belton, as we discuss how credit spreads have remained well anchored despite a recent decrease in stock prices and whether the current level of credit spreads will ultimately prove a trick or a treat for investors. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Well, Dan, as we record our podcast today, the Dow is down about 850 points after dropping more than 600 points on Monday. And yet, despite the recent weakness in stock markets, credit spreads remain near post-pandemic lows. Just to put some numbers around it, stocks hit recent highs on October 12th. And since then, the S&P 500 is down about 6 or 6.5%. High yield spreads are out about 18 basis points. And then investment-grade corporate spreads are actually three basis points narrower over the past two and a half weeks. So we looked at spreads and equities over the past month, spanning 22 trading sessions. And we found that the S&P 500 has declined in 10 of those trading sessions. The ice Spamil High Yield Index has widened six times for an average of six and a half basis points over the past month. And the Investment Grade Corporate Index has widened just one time by one basis point over the past month. So I highlight this to show that this outperformance in investment grade credit has not come with increased volatility, but rather spreads are not moving much, even on days like today where other risk assets like equities and even CDX are really struggling. Yeah. And I think the main driver behind recent stock market weakness is pretty obvious. We see coronavirus cases across the Northern Hemisphere starting to increase significantly as temperatures drop. And we're starting to see implementation of new lockdowns across Europe, most recently in Germany this morning. So I think The most interesting theme to focus on for today's podcast is what is driving the divergence between stocks and credit spreads rather than what's driving the most recent risk-off sentiment. And we can think of a few potential explanations, and I'd like to talk about each one, perhaps in order from least likely to most likely. So I'll start with one potential explanation that I don't think is the driving force, but could be contributing a little bit on the edges, and that's taxation. The presidential election is next week, and at this point, it seems very likely that Joe Biden will win the election with a pretty strong likelihood that the Democrats will also carry both houses of Congress. And in that case, the Democrats will likely be able to push through their taxation policy, which focuses on increasing taxes for the rich, a part of that being increasing capital gains taxes. Now, in our presidential election preview we published a few weeks back, we talked about how one of the drivers of high equity prices despite the pandemic might be the taxation benefit it enjoys over other asset classes, particularly since President Trump installed the limitation on state and local tax deductions for federal taxes. In combination with the QE program that the Fed has been conducting for the past few months, injecting money supply that is not often being consumed is being saved. And where does it get saved? Primarily in asset classes that have the most beneficial tax policy. And up until this point, it's been stocks that have had a pretty demonstrable tax advantage over other asset classes. But that math could obviously change if the Democrats 
push through their tax proposals and increase capital gains, which has an outsized impact on stocks. There's also some talk that Democrats roll back salt limitations. Either way, if the very rich who own most investment assets in the country are pricing in higher capital gains taxes, we could see a divergence between stocks and credit spreads that wouldn't really be impacted by increasing capital gains. Now, I say this is a less likely driver because I think given the big proliferation in COVID-19 cases recently, that the first order of business for Democrats, if they do indeed end up taking power at the election next week, the first order of business will be to pass stimulus legislation and likely a sizable one. And that changes to the tax code may not come till late 2021 or even potentially later than that, depending on the path of the virus. So it doesn't seem likely to me that the market will be pricing in changes to capital gains taxes at this point, but it is at least one potential explanation. Dan, what's another factor you think could be contributing to this recent divergence between spreads and stocks? So one factor that could be driving this divergence is that it's possible that fixed income investors are looking past this near-term weakness in a way that equity investors are not. So if we don't see significant downgrades or defaults in the investment-grade corporate market, and to be clear, that still is a sizable if, but if corporate fundamentals remain intact, then this near-term decline in corporate profits that equities are currently reflecting should disproportionately impact stocks and leave corporate bonds relatively unscathed. So obviously, corporate bondholders don't participate in the same upside that equities do. And so one could make the argument that investors are looking beyond this near-term equity market weakness and looking towards 2021. Then we are on record with our expectation that 2021 should feature a much more constructive environment for credit spreads. We think there's going to be continued monetary accommodation next year, a much lower volatility environment, which could give way to a yield grab, which should certainly cause downward pressure on spreads. To be clear, there will be winners and losers from a sectoral perspective coming out of this year. But once those are washed from the index and the market is able to look past 2020 and into a post-pandemic world, it's possible that This is the reason that spreads have not reacted negatively, just simply that investors are looking beyond the current equity market weakness. And closely related to the point you just made, Dan, potentially contributing to the outperformance of credit spreads recently has been a somewhat surprisingly tame increase in downgrades and defaults to this point in the cycle so far. Given the magnitude of the shock that faced the economy, we and many other market participants forecasted a very significant jump in defaults and downgrades. And while they have certainly increased through the cycle, it hasn't been as extreme as maybe some were expecting. And part of that is certainly because we're seeing the brunt of the economic slowdown fall on the shoulders of small business, which don't generally fall in the investment-grade corporate sector that we focus on. In fact, investment-grade corporations have actually weathered the storm quite well. So investment-grade corporate downgrade rates are actually more in line with recent non-recessionary periods of 2012 and 2016 than they are in line with the 2002 recession and the 2008 financial crisis. And we view that as really a testament to the monetary accommodation that the Fed has been able to deliver this year allowing corporations to raise record amounts of cash at low rates, which has really kept their balance sheets intact. I think that's really more confirmation of the idea of this K-shaped recovery that's gaining popularity. It just is going to be winners and losers. And once those losers are washed out, by and large, the corporate sector is going to be relatively healthy. Of course, we can't say any of that without 
the third factor and what I think is the main factor that's keeping credit spreads contained here, and that is the Federal Reserve and the unprecedented accommodation that the Fed has put forth. And that's despite the fact the Fed has bought very little corporate security so far. Obviously, we don't yet have data for this week, but heading into the week, the Fed had bought under $14 billion in corporate securities. Obviously, that's not enough to be moving the needle for credit spreads. But what the Fed has done is change the psychology for investors by providing them with the comfort to know that the Fed is there. If financial conditions were to deteriorate again, the Fed would likely increase their purchases significantly and ultimately come to the rescue again. Then the other thing the Fed has done is just through the sheer magnitude of their treasury and MBS quantitative easing is they've flooded the system with liquidity to give rise to this metaphorical wall of cash that we've seen that has shown really strong demand for corporate debt. And we find evidence of this deep demand for corporate debt in a few different places in our market. First, if you look at the primary market and new issue concessions, in 10 of the past 14 weeks, we see average new issue concessions of less than zero. And that's compared to a long-term average of about five basis points of new issue concession. So what this tells me is that there's extremely strong demand for new corporate paper, so much so that investors are willing to pay up to get new issues. Also, investment-grade bond fund flows over the past 28 weeks have seen straight inflows totaling $175 billion. And to that point, if we are starting to see a crack in risk sentiment and inflows into stocks are slowing down, investment-grade corporates make sense. That would be generally considered a high credit quality investment for most investors. So really what drives big increases in credit spreads is credit concerns, is liquidity concerns. We're not there yet. And I don't think we're at that point yet like we were in March where people are concerned about the credit worthiness of most corporations, or there's a big liquidity crunch and people are worried about bank credit. This is just a general risk aversion as investors move towards higher credit quality investments for the time being. Now, it's worth noting that some of these emergency Fed programs that we talked about as being some of the primary drivers behind credit spread, staying well-contained during recent volatility, a lot of those programs are currently scheduled to expire at the end of the year after their original expiration date of September 30th was pushed back to the end of the year. And it now on the verge of being November, we have to start thinking about two questions, really. Will the Fed allow those programs to expire at the end of the year? And if they do, what will the impact on spreads be? Let's start with the second question first, potentially. What would the impact be if the Fed did indeed allow their emergency programs to expire at the end of the year? Well, Dan, as you mentioned earlier, the Fed's bought still under $14 billion worth of corporate credit directly. But the impact of the facility is obviously much more significant than that. It really acts as a backstop, which gives an added sense of security to investors that we won't see another event of illiquidity in the market like we saw in March. But it makes it a lot harder to quantify the real impact of these facilities, especially as the Fed has been engaging in a lot of other forms of monetary accommodation. That's very true. But I think if we look back to the experience of the financial crisis, there is some lessons that can be taken away from that time. Of course, the term alphabet soup as it relates to the Fed was invented in the financial crisis as the Fed unleashed a bunch of new liquidity programs to try and stem the worst of the financial crisis. But one in particular seems to share a lot of parallels with the current corporate credit facilities that the Fed has outstanding. And I'm referring to the experience of the TALF following the 2008 financial crisis. So the TALF, which has been reopened in this current cycle as well, was announced in November 2008, and it was designed to buy 
highly rated asset-backed securities. The program initially had a capacity of $200 billion, although officials at the time indicated that the size of the TELF could eventually increase to as much as a trillion dollars. That's how much they expected the program to be used because hopes for program uptake were especially high at the time of the announcement. However, the program struggled to get off the ground. In fact, in the first few months of its existence, total TELF uptake was $0. And then even once it got off the ground, program uptake was much lower than originally hoped, maxing out at a peak of $49 billion, well below the limit and expectations for its uptake when it was established. And why was the program not that well used? Well, just in the three months from the program being announced when it actually became operational, credit conditions improved significantly and the utility offered by the TELF dropped significantly. And that sounds very similar to the experience of the corporate credit facilities in the current cycle. The PMCCF and SMCCF together have a capacity of $750 billion. PMCCF usage has been zero and will likely stay that way. And as you've talked about multiple times here, SMCCF is under $14 billion. So TELF in 2008 and the current corporate credit facilities, they are both very large programs, originally expected to result in large uptake. Both had trouble getting off the ground for operational reasons. And during that time, conditions improved, ultimately leading to the uptake of both facilities underwhelming. So given these similarities, we can look at what happened when TELF was discontinued in the first quarter of 2010 to get an idea of what might happen to corporate credit spreads once the PMCCF and SMCCF ultimately expire. And if we look at the experience of TALF-eligible assets, primarily highly rated asset-backed securities, and we compare that to agency-backed MBS and debt, since that's the most germane comparison, mostly AAA assets, we can see that immediately following the expiration of TALF in March 2010, we see a 35 basis point widening of asset-backed securities compared to agency debt and agency MBS. And we looked for other potential drivers of this widening. But there really was no credit impact. Yes, the European debt crisis was starting to begin, but it was still very early days. And we saw no particular event that led to a risk off during that time frame. Actually, other risk assets, credit spreads, stock markets, whatever, were quite stable between March and June 2010. So it wasn't a risk off type move. And on the other end, we didn't see any driver of any idiosyncratic outperformance for agency-backed collateral. There was no amendment or anything to the preferred stock purchase agreements that would have increased agency risk worthiness. There just really was nothing else. It was the end of the emergency facilities, and we immediately saw a 35 basis point widening in asset backs. So what does that mean for the corporate credit facilities? Well, if we adjust that 35 basis point widening for current levels of yields and spreads, it equates to a backup of investment-grade credit spreads of 10 to 13 basis points upon the expiration of corporate credit facilities. And that degree of widening makes sense given how important the credit facilities are as they act as a backstop for credit spreads. So now the next question becomes, Dan, is the Fed actually going to let these facilities expire at the end of the year? I think it's likely that they get extended, although we note that the first time they were extended, that announcement came just over two months before the initial end date. So in a sense, we would expect that announcement to be coming fairly soon. We got some interesting comments from Dalip Singh, who's the head of the New York Fed's market group, last week when he announced that, among other things, it's possible that if market functioning continues to improve, that we could see Fed purchases pause altogether in the corporate credit facilities in the near future. So while we expect that to be coming, that's somewhat separate from the question of whether the Fed's facilities will be extended beyond the end of the year. 
One reason we think that they will is the illiquid markets that we typically see at the end of December seem like an odd time to wind down a facility that's been so constructive for such an important market. And we think that extending the facility by a quarter to the end of March 2021 makes a lot of sense there. And it doesn't cost the Fed all that much, given that purchases from the facility are fairly low and likely to get even lower in the near future. And Section 13.3 of the Federal Reserve Act, which is what grants the FOMC the power to establish their emergency liquidity facilities, offers very little guidance regarding when and how the facilities should be wound down. The only statement the text makes is that the facilities cannot become permanent and should be terminated in a, quote, timely and orderly fashion. So clearly the Fed has a pretty large leeway with determining how the facilities should ultimately be wound up. And I agree with you, Dan. I think that there's only risk and very little reward to shutting the facilities down at this point. And to that point, if you look at what happened in the emergency facilities in 2008 and 2009, many were outstanding for about two years and some even longer than that. Now, there is one big difference between the current cycle and 2008, which is that the banking sector is on much stronger footing this time around. Back then, we all know that the financial system was in dire straits. And that would argue that potentially the financial system was unable to extend liquidity and was thus more reliant upon Fed liquidity than they are this time. Maybe now the banking sector is more able to stand on its own and doesn't need the Fed programs. So that would argue that these programs will likely not last quite as long as they did during the financial crisis. But I don't think that the end of the year is a realistic time frame for the programs to end. But it does argue that potentially another short extension of just three months to the end of March 2021, and then that being an actual live date for the facilities to potentially end, dependent upon the path of the virus, of course, and whether or not we have a vaccine by then. So I think it's market consensus at this point that the facilities will remain outstanding past the end of the year, and we agree with that notion. And if that's the main driver for why spreads have continued to be held in, despite recent equity market weakness. To bring it back to the title of the episode, I guess, current spread levels trick or treat, where do we fall? Dan, if I have to pick between one, I'll call them a treat. I think that this discussion really reinforces our expectation that any widening in credit spreads right now should really be viewed as a buying opportunity to initiate longs or move out the credit spectrum and increase beta. Yeah, I think that's the right view. I think that this week is evidence that there's going to be some periods of transitory risk off. Obviously, we're having one this week and the virus continues to spread. There could be some hiccups with vaccines. If we're really not going to get stimulus until January, potentially, there's likely to be an increase in small business failures, potentially even some large corporations coming under credit stress in the next couple of months. And that could put some upward pressure on credit spreads. But the degree of the Fed intervention and the more constructive outlook for 2021, that we're going to have more stimulus events, so that there's going to be a vaccine eventually. It's just about getting there. We have to look at any near-term spread widening that does take place as a buying opportunity. And obviously, these buying opportunities aren't proving to be as deep as we may have otherwise hoped. A 6-plus percent move in stocks resulting in basically no basis points in credit spread widening. Obviously, very disappointing for investors waiting for better entry points. But it just goes to show you the strength of the consensus now forming that next year is going to be a very low spread environment. And any opportunity to add to spreads at levels wider than current, I think, has to be taken advantage of. Now, Dan, before wrapping up, this is our last podcast before the presidential election next week. So I'd like to take just a couple minutes to share any final thoughts that we may have ahead of the event itself. 
Dan, how are you viewing the impact that the election may have on credit spreads as we head into the actual event? So I think a Joe Biden presidency is largely priced right now. As to what's priced for the Senate, I think that's a little bit less clear, as are the implications for what happens in the Senate. I think you could view a few different outcomes as positive or negative for credit spreads. So if we get a Democratic sweep, I do think the initial move will be a knee-jerk narrowing and an outperformance by risk assets. And that's because right now what's driving risk assets is the potential for fiscal stimulus. If we have a Democratic sweep, we're likely to see a very comprehensive package delivered quickly once the new regime is in place. Now, further down the road, the market will have to grapple with the implications for the potential for a rewrite of the tax code, which would likely be a negative, but I think the first reaction would be a positive to a blue sweep. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, I continue to think that the worst case scenario for credit spreads would be some uncertainty persisting after the election, whether it's disputed or contested, or the results are unclear for some period of time afterwards. I think then we could see some transitory spread market weakness. Yeah, I'm with you. I think obviously the big thing is going to be whether or not there's a contested election or uncertainty following the election. Some of the improvement in risk asset prices we'd seen, obviously up until very recently, was reflective of the idea that uncertainty was potentially not going to happen, that it was going to be a runaway victory. That optimism seems to be fading here more recently. But I think that's going to be the primary determinant of the spread market reaction in terms of everything else. I agree with you, Dan, that if the Democrats do win, it's going to be a function of timing of their policies. And just given what's gone on with the virus in recent weeks, the first order of business will be more stimulus, which risk assets will obviously like. So we should see a knee-jerk move to narrower spreads following a blue wave. And then somewhat paradoxically, if the Republicans do manage to hang on to the Senate, which I think is a real possibility, I think there's low conviction for either candidate in this election. And some people that maybe voted for Trump last time, some you know fringe Republicans who don't want to vote for Trump this time, they keep their vote with the Republican senator and they vote for Biden. I do think that a split Congress and a Biden victory is a real possibility. And in that case, if the Republicans hold on to the Senate, it could complicate stimulus negotiations. As Senate Republicans seem to now be the main stumbling block for those negotiations. So we could see some upward pressure on spreads if the Republicans hang on to the Senate, which is not something we would have thought as recently as a couple weeks ago. No matter what, we're looking forward to the event being cleared from the landscape, hopefully without much uncertainty. The market can begin to reprice other fundamental factors ahead of 2021. This concludes Macro Horizons. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. 
Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal. 